0: like speaking like right to you? Anybody? Okay, well, how did he know that I was in the drive-thru at Taco Bell on Friday night getting 12 tacos, right? (laughs) I didn't know that that was a spiritual battle, but apparently it was. I realized that I got into this point in my life where I thought I was above Taco Bell, you know? That's a bad place to be, man. You're not above Taco Bell. Plus, my kids had to experience it the next morning, too. Anyway, um, (laughs) get this, get to the word quick. All right, here we go. Uh, Man, uh, so we're, we're going through the book of Romans together. Um, and after spending several weeks learning about and sitting in uh, Paul's explanation of our sinful condition that is uh, spelled out in the first few chapters of Romans, last week we caught this amazing ray of hope that no matter what we've done in our lives, uh, in Christ we can be honest about what we've done, we can be honest about who we are. Um, because we're not made right with God uh, on our own effort. But instead, we we were shown last week that we are justified by faith alone, not by our own works. And it sounds amazing, right? And then I did this little kind of spur-of-the-moment survey. You remember that one with Romans 3.23 and Romans 3.24? And I, here's what I said. I said, if you uh, if you know Romans 3.23 by heart, raise your hand. It says, you know, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God— and like probably half the room raised their hand. And I said, okay, if you also have memorized Romans 3.24, keep your hand up and almost everybody dropped their hand except for a few Bible thumpers, which is awesome. But um, what, what I wanted to show you is, is there's something that has happened uh, uh, in, our, in and of ourselves and our ability to believe the truth that God says about us because of how the world has conditioned our faith. Um, why is it so hard for us to receive the gift of the good news of the gospel? You know, I've been thinking about that all week this week, and I think it's because our faith in large part is too grown up to receive the good news, that there's something that happens to us in this world that deconditions our hearts for grace. It's got too much of the world in the way. And Jesus says to us something really interesting. There are these kids that come up to him and the disciples are like, get away from Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, stop. Those little kids, they have the right to come to me. In fact, if you don't come to me like they're coming to me, you're not coming to me the right way. And it's this really convicting thing for us to consider, yet we forget about it as soon as we read that passage. So yesterday I was out in the yard starting the two-month process of getting rid of the leaves, right? Welcome to Georgia people look at the leaves, they're like, man, those leaves are beautiful. Oh, I see is work, all right? Uh, and so I'm out there blowing the leaves, uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, as I was working, Roman, my, my youngest son, uh, comes out in the yard, and he says, Daddy, I want to help you out. I want to blow the leaves for you. And in my mind, let me just share you what I'm thinking. Well, you know, that's great, but it's just going to take longer now, right? Well, that's great, but you're probably not going to do it the way dad would do it. So I don't know. And then it hit me. This is exactly how I think uh, about God. Roman is coming to me like the father wants me to come to him with this childlike faith, wanting uh, to, to come and contribute to his father's work, you know, hopeful, filled with joy and faith about just getting to work with his father. He's not even thinking about the fact that I'm 75% of the way done with the leaves. He just wants to be in the game with me, Right. And and I'm thinking about Romans request the same way I think that God thinks about me. He's gonna mess it up and I don't have time for this. And so I did what anybody would do that's convicted by the Holy Spirit in a moment. And I said, okay. And I turned off the blower, resized it to fit his little body, fired it up and watched him work, right? He's out there just, I mean, you can see how much of the leave's already done, right? And he gets on it and he finishes up the work, but he's not in his mind calculating how much of the leave work did I co- contribute? You know, he's not thinking through the spreadsheet here. He's just thinking, I got to work with dad and that was fun, right? I want to invite uh, you to think the same way about working with your heavenly father today. Because the truth is, is that when Roman was finishing up those leaves, friends, I could not wait to tell him, well done. Well done, son. What a great job you did. But you and I rarely hear that from our Father in heaven. And that's what keeps us on the hamster wheel of trying to earn our salvation based on our works. Jesus tells us to come to him like children receive this gift of salvation through faith by grace, to boldly come before him and ask and receive. And yet we still come to him like slaves, unworthy to receive the gift of his life for us. Justification by faith, not by works, is a gift from your heavenly father that your father cannot wait to give to you, friends. But is your heart ready to receive it? Is your heart ready to really hear the Father's well done over your life? And what we're gonna be talking about today uh, is really how you have to let go of that achievement mentality to be able to grab on to the gift that God has for us. And, and what Paul does today in Romans chapter four is he uses the example of Abraham. And this answers a few questions for us. Like how were people in the Old Testament saved? Did God have like a different plan of salvation for their life? And as we'll see, no. There's, there's only one name as Acts four says that anyone's ever been saved before and it's through the name of Jesus. And so, you know, we're gonna look at how was Abraham justified before Jesus came into the world? And in the story of Abraham, what we see is we uncover our own brokenness and how it relates to this transfer of trust and righteousness that God desires to give to us. So here's our big idea for today. The people of God are justified by believing, not achieving. It's the same thing we've been saying over and over and over again in a different way, because guess what? We need to hear it over and over and over again so that we might actually start believing it. Amen? Okay, so let me just give you a couple of highlights of this before we dive all the way through the the text today. Romans 4, I'm going to read 16 and then 20 and 22, and it kind of gives us the big picture of this passage. The scripture says this, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise, the promise of eternal life that you and I long to receive, long to enter into, may rest on grace and be a guarantee to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherents of the law or the Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. No unbelief, verse 20, made him waver concerning the promise of God for eternal life, but he grew strong in his faith, well, actually the promise of God for for a, a descendant that would conquer the enemy, that would lead to eternal life. Okay, uh, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced with that childlike kind of faith that God was able to do what He actually promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness, and that's he's quoting Genesis fifteen six, which is kind of like the John three sixteen of the Old Testament, right? Um. You know, us of little faith, oh, us of little faith, right? Unable to receive the gift with our whole heart. That's our biggest challenge, friends. And functionally, it means that if we're still trying to be justified by our efforts and our work, and we're still trying to take our resumes and our report cards to God, showing them how much we've done, that we'll always feel this deficit in our hearts. We'll never feel the fullness of who God uh, is to us. And so today we're gonna explore what does it look like? What does this journey, this pathway to wholeness actually look like? And there's two kind of theological constructs I wanna look through here. One of them is called the covenant of works and one of them is called the covenant of grace. Abraham basically is saying in Romans chapter four that the covenant of works will never lead you to eternal life. That we have a freedom to abandon trying to seek life through the covenant of works, but the covenant of grace is what God has called us to. So one is by works and one is by faith. One is by achieving, one is by believing, one is by obeying every command in the Bible with all of your heart, all of the time, with all of your life. This path is by living a perfect life or by obeying what theologians call the covenant of works. So let's, let's look into this. How would I define what the covenant of works is? It's, earning, it's seeking to earn eternal life through our obedience to God. Anyone who ever wants to show a report card to God or to show any kind of list of achievements that you've achieved in your life as to add to your kind of net kingdom worth, this is what's required of you, to obey fully from your heart and in your behaviors for all of your life and every moment. That's the pathway to this type of wholeness that you're seeking. If you want to show your record, here's what the scriptures say. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. This is where it kind of started. And the Lord God commanded the man after he created him, Adam, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. In other words, a capital Y-E-S for you, Adam. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you should not eat. For in that day, if you eat of it, you will surely die. So it's the kind of this covenant that he makes. If you obey, you'll have life. If you don't, you will surely die. And then the reason I call this a covenant of works or or theologians do is because this is the way Hosea thinks about it. In Hosea chapter six, uh, Hosea six, six and seven says this, for I desire the steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, so he's going back to Genesis, they transgressed the covenant there and they dealt faithlessly with me. So what what the scriptures are teaching us is a covenant is is a, is a is kind of a binding agreement between two parties where you have to meet each other's expectations in order to get the fulfillment of whatever that covenant is promising. And so what the scriptures are saying is that we have inherently failed to keep our end of the of the of the of the bargain. And so does God just leave us when He cast us out of that garden? And he puts the, you know, the angels and the flaming sword, so we can never enter the garden again. Does he just leave us out on our own is the question. Are we just fending for ourselves in this world? No, as soon as we fall, he gives us another promise. A promise that though it's going to be, there's gonna be trouble in this world, there's gonna be pain, there's gonna be death, that he's overcoming. It's that promise that we talk about often in Genesis 3.15, where there'll be a descendant of the woman that will ultimately crush the head Of the enemy. And the Old Testament is filled with that promise being opened and expanded for for us to receive. So, um, what we see in this is that they can't see all of the promise at the time, and we can't see it either. And in the book of Romans is tying the fulfillment of that promise together. So, we look back through history in the Bible and we see the promise passed down through Noah through Abraham, through Moses, through David, and ultimately to us through Jesus. But here's the thing, the promise never changes. It's always been by faith, not by works. But, but there's this tension in each of us that wants to walk back into the Garden of Eden and prove ourselves to God, and that's what makes it so hard to receive the gift, is we're still trying to get back into the garden to prove ourselves to God. And God says, enough! You'll never inherit eternity with that way of living. The problem is not your desire for eternal life, friends. Ecclesiastes chapter three says that, that that God put that desire for eternity in your heart, that you were made for eternity. That's not the problem. The problem is the ways that our hearts have been conditioned to think that we're going to get eternity. And God is undoing and unraveling that mentality in us in the book of Romans. All of us are born with the nature of Adam, which is still trying to gain eternity with our own resources. But the Bible is showing us from Genesis all the way to Revelation that the covenant of works will never get us into eternity with God. We are justified by believing God's promise for us. It was the object and the strength of Abraham's faith that saved him, not his ability to get it done. And, and this, is why, this is why Romans chapter three says this to us. He, I'm just gonna close up the last couple of verses there that I didn't really hit last week as we get into Romans four. Romans 3, 27 and 28 says this. What becomes of our boasting about our resume, about our report card, about our achievements before God? He says it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works, by a covenant of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from, lo- from, the, from the law, from works of the law. So in Romans 4, as we dig into this, Paul will show us in several ways how Abraham was saved through the covenant of grace by his faith instead of by the covenant of works on his own obedience. So let's dig into this idea of the covenant of grace. It's receiving eternal life from God by grace through faith in the promise that he's given to us. So I'm I'm, I'm gonna track all the way through Romans 4. I know you're thinking that's a lot of verses for the amount of time I have, but it's okay. We're gonna get into it. Uh, But there's kind of four headings and they're really practical headings that I wanna give to you as we journey through it. The first one is this. (laughs) Mutual fun faith isn't saving faith. That's timely, isn't it? Um, Number two, God fulfills specific promises, not vague wishes. Number three, God rescues us before we seek rescue. Number four, there are massive benefits of believing in justification by faith. So let's dig into that. Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our our forefather, according to the flesh? For if by Abraham was justified by works, he really has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, if we look at Abraham's life and we think he's special because he left the land of Ur and he went out to a foreign land that he'd never heard of because God met him, you know, that's cool, but it's not gonna stand up before God, is what the scriptures say. Like, it can, you can be impressed by anybody's faith in this world, anybody's accomplishments or achievements, but it will not stand up against God at the end of time unless it depends on faith in Jesus alone. So, you think about the people that you look up to and you're impressed by that you wanna be like, that you think if I could only have or be like them, then my life would be complete. If their life is not dependent upon a righteousness that comes from faith alone, through Christ alone, it will not stand before God. If anyone could stand up on their own merit in all of human history other than Jesus, who would it be? Abraham, right? It'd be Abraham, it'd be guys like Moses. Abraham was made righteous, meaning that he met the expectations of eternal life through believing God, not achieving for God. But there's this tendency in each of us to have what Tony Evans calls mutual fun faith. I love it. It's great. So what's a mutual, what's mutual fund faith? Well, a mutual fund, if you're unfamiliar with what that is, is an investment strategy where you invest your money into a fund instead of a single stock. So multiple stocks in a fund, uh, or an asset, uh, in a company. So, so that you're able to diversify your risk of failure, but also increase your potential for reward, right? It's, it's a, it's kind of a risk management strategy. And I think it's so interesting because we kind of we kind of walk into the Christian life, we're conditioned to do it the same way. We're, we're conditioned to say, I've got these works that I can give to God. I've got these things I want to do for God. And yes, I've got this faith in God. So if I put the two together, surely God will be pleased with me. Paul says, this is a completely incompatible hope that you have for eternal life. In fact, it will increase the burden and and deceive your heart so deeply if you think that will stand up before God, that we cannot fully experience the joy of our salvation where there's only been this partial transfer of trust in our hearts. We put our achievements coupled with our faith and our fund and we come to God for our quarterly review of our assets and and every time we come to him we're showing that our dependence on our works he's coming he's showing us that our dependence on our works is actually taking away from our net worth not adding to it. And that's that's a really kind of practical way to think about how we kind of combine our faith and our works and and and, and James will go and he'll say something that seems like it's completely the opposite of what Paul says, right? You try to read James and Romans together, you're like, right? But the difference is the order. The difference is the weight. The difference is the priority. Are you coming to God with your works, looking for approval from him? Or are you serving God from a place of approval uh, with your works, right? That's the right order that Paul talks about. That's the right order that James talks about. So, this, there's this word in Romans 4 that I want you to track. Anytime there's a word that appears multiple times, you should probably pay attention to it. And so, the word counted is used in the book of Romans, Romans chapter uh, 4, not one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but 10 times, right? We ought to pay attention to that word if it's used 10 times. And this is because. Um, you know, in this word, it's an accounting term, right? It's a, it's an accounting term that means uh, uh, that involves both debits and credits that, that means to put into one's account or to charge to one's account. And the language that Paul's using is that there's been a total trust, a transfer of righteousness to our account through faith alone. That what we thought was crediting our account for eternity was actually taking away. And so he uses this over and over and over again to tell it to us. So Romans 4, uh, verses 4 through 8 kind of digs into this. He says this, Now to the one who works, the one who's trusting in the covenant of works, the one who's trying to show his report card, his achievement list to God, he says his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Like he deserves that paycheck for all of eternity, right? And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. So he shows us this different angle, right? That 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 actually when we when we are thinking that we're kind of um, he, he basically here's what he's saying. He's like, okay, if you're coming to God on the basis of works, you need to have a stronger demand. When you come to him in prayer, you need to say, You have to bless me, God, because I've been working for you. Now, nobody in here will do that, will we? We won't dare come to God with that kind of confidence because we know we're not justified by our works. We know we don't want what we deserve. That's why we don't come to God like that. So, why then do we look at our salvation? like we've contributed something to it. And therefore, and here's how you know it happens. It's when you're unable to forgive someone or the joy of your salvation is dull when you sense uh, the fact that you're not meeting the standard of God. Those are kind of some of the indicators. And this is why even in this passage, uh, Paul brings up the idea that that David entered into this through this idea of being forgiven, right? The word says you, you really can't know forgiveness, which is, really is a fruit of living in the covenant of grace. You really can't know forgiveness until you've released the debt to the Lord. Your debt of sin, you've completely given it to him. You're not still trying to pay a debt that's already been paid. And forgiveness is this massive, massive deal for all of us. Paul says, you you, you know, you, you just, the way that you think about forgiveness and the way that you think God views you in light of your need to be forgiven reveals everything about how you sense and receive his gift of grace. And the best example of this in all of the Bible comes from Luke chapter 15. And I really, every time I read this, I wanna preach it. It's the parable of the, of the, of the two sons, the two lost sons, right? Or the parable of the prodigal son. And the, the part that I just wanna remind you of is how the older brother reacted when the younger brother was forgiven, okay? How the older brother received the news that the younger brother had been forgiven and reinstated and everybody was celebrating over this sinner's life, okay? It's it's quite compelling as you read it and it's very familiar to my heart. Uh, Romans 15, 28 through 32 says this, but he, he's talking about the older brother here and it's this parable Jesus is telling. He says he was angry and he refused to go into the house, where this big party is going on because the, the, the younger brother who was wild and reckless was, was home now and the father was celebrating. He says his father comes out to the, to the older brother. The father pursues the older brother the same way he did the younger brother, right? He comes out to him and he entreats him. But the, the older brother answers his father and says, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. What a statement. Yet you never even gave me a young goat. You didn't even give me, you know, something that wasn't even as valuable as a fattened calf. You you never even gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened, prized calf for him and his friends. And he said to him, the father says to the older brother, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours, and it's always been yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad for this brother of yours was dead, and now he's alive, and he was lost, and now he's found. Why was it so hard, friends, for the older brother to celebrate a righteousness that was granted by faith to his younger brother? Why was it so hard? Why is it so hard to believe that his reckless little brother can be back in good standing with his father? That this little brother can be reinstated into the family and receive an inheritance again, even though he blew it on drugs, alcohol, prostitutes, you name it, he blew it. It's because of the fact that the brother <clears throat> the brother, thought that he was in good standing with his father because of his obedience, his works, that his father loved and gave to him because he was so good. That's the great lie that the older brother believed and the great uh, thing that he stood upon for his own justification and his righteousness. And it is the very thing that the enemy uses to try to steal the joy of your salvation from you. The fact that you, that, that he tempts us to think that we have something to stand on on our own. One brother was living out of the covenant of works, the older brother. One brother was rescued by the covenant of grace. Which one are you living out of this morning? Is it hard for you to see God really rescue filthy, rotten sinners? Is the joy of your salvation dull when you look at your own works in obedience that hopefully flow from that forgiveness that God's given you? When you think about forgiveness, where do you turn? You might be living out of the covenant of works more than you know. And the beauty of the gospel is that we can be rescued by grace and cancel the mutual fund altogether, friends. That you can be rescued from the free fall, in a free fall of grace by faith because of what Jesus has done for us. Now the second thing we see is this, is that God fulfills specific promises, not vague wishes, so Abraham was saved by believing that God will fulfill his promise by giving him a son by faith. And we, we know that this son would, would lead to the coming of Jesus. That's kind of the story that we're able to stitch together. That's why, you know, the New Testament begins with the genealogy. That's why Genesis 3 starts with this promise of a descendant. The whole thing is stitched together, that Jesus is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. So Abraham was saved by believing that God would fulfill Genesis 3 and send Jesus through his family. And we're all saved by that same promise, right? That same similar faith in that promise. The total and complete transfer of trust in God's specific promise to us is what leads to our joy, our confidence, our hope, our security, and our internal inheritance. But what exactly is that promise? Like what are the guts of it? What are the details? Are we just hoping in God? No. Uh, Genesis 15, 1 through 6 is the specific promise that Abraham sunk his faith into. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. But Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my, of my household will be my heir. Um, and, and the Lord says to him, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son, you know, somewhere between 75 and 95-year-old Abram, right? You're going to have a son, brother, right? He comes to him and says, you don't have to kind of hit eject on the promises of God just because you can't see a way forward. I am going to come through, Abram. Do you believe me? And so the, the scriptures and then, then and then and then verse five says this. He brought him outside and says, "Hey Abram." And I, and I picture this. You know, I, I'm not trying to be uh, anthropomorphic. Amphithrom- you know, like putting a body on God. I, I got that word wrong. But I picture like God coming outside with Abram, saying, "Hey Abram," like like look up, like putting his arm around Abram almost. Look up at the look up at the sky. And it's this beautiful clear night, right? And there's no lights from the city around, and the stars are endless. And he says, basically, like, Abram, if you can count the stars, that's how many descendants I'm going to give you, even though your body is as good as dead. Because I want you to know that this promise depends on faith, not your ability to get it done. And, and this is the specific promise that Abraham believes for a specific blessing that will come from God and faith in that promise. The promise is that he would become a great nation through he and his wife actually bearing a son that would start this legacy. But this promise was this faith promise. Abram and Sarah had tried to have children their entire lives and God never delivered. And we don't know why they struggled and you and I have friends that we deeply love that struggle with infertility and we, we don't know the mind of God. We, we empathize in the struggle Abraham and Sarah knew the struggle well. The road is long and it's empty and it was as well for these two. And we tend to think about the outcome of their journey more than the journey itself. And God said, your very son is gonna be your heir. What a miraculous thing. The promise was made to Abraham in Genesis 12 when he was 75 and it will be clarified in Genesis 15 and it would be fulfilled in Genesis 21 when Abraham was 100 years old. Romans 4, 13 through 15 gives some commentary on this for us. He says, For the promise to Abram and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So Isaac's birth and Jesus's coming and dying and raising is the proof of another way to live, friends. Anything that we think we can contribute to this balance sheet only serves to add to the burden that Jesus came to rescue us from. And our Christian faith, like Abraham's faith, is never a vague thing. What specific promises of God does the weight of your saving faith cling to this morning? What are the specific things? Because, you know, when when you look at, like, Passages like James 2, 19 that says, you know, even the, even, the, even the demons believe in God, even they shudder, right? It's not enough to just say, I believe in God. What are the specific promises that your soul clings to this morning? Can you recount any of them? If you, if you can't recount any of them, that might be one of the reasons why your faith seems dull and maybe even hopeless this morning. Here are some of the amazing promises from God that I choose to believe in different seasons. You know, when I or, or others I struggle with doubt, here's a few of them. John three thirty six whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But God, what about all of these things that I don't? What about the sin I just committed? Do you believe in the Son? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Romans 10, 9 and 10. You know, God, I've really blown it today. I'm not sure you love me anymore. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God actually raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I have to come back to these promises over and over and over again. These very specific promises that were given for very specific struggles that image bearers of God all have. And we're called to recount them and to dispel the lies with the truth of God. Or how about when I struggle with an assurance of forgiveness? First John one nine, if we confess our sins, okay, God, I'm coming to you confessing my sins, so I'm doing that part. If we confess our sins, it's conditional. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But God, you don't know what I did last summer. Did you confess it, Ryan? Yes, I confessed it, God. Then I've forgiven it. Do you see the struggle that we're in and the power of God's promises? In the struggle. Or maybe some of you are exhausted by life. You just are on the rat race. You, the family's falling apart. You're running. You're, you're insecure about your job. You just don't know what the future holds. Jesus gave us promises for those seasons as well. Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So Ryan, will you, will you come to me? I know you're tired, you're exhausted. Will you come to me? Yes, Father, I'll come to you. How will you come to me? I'll come to you in prayer. I'll come to you through the word. I'll come to you by showing up in fellowship with other believers. Then I promise to give you rest. This is how we learn to dispel the lies. We have to be honest about the specific lies that we're believing and grab onto the specific promises of God and our hearts, our hearts our hearts are comforted. So what lies, friends, are you believing today? Not general lies, like I just wish I had more faith, or I just wish I didn't sin so much. But what specific lies are you believing today? And how do you know they're lies? Well, friends, we know that they're lies because God's truth dispels them. Friend, I want to encourage you to get specific with the lies so you can live specifically in the promise this morning. Well, here's another thing we see in Romans chapter four that God rescues us before we seek refuge ourselves. Rescue ourselves. So circumcision in the Bible is this—it's this outward physical sign, and not only a sign, so not only an indicator, but the Scriptures also says it's a seal. We don't use that language much. If we lived in a monarchy, we might know what a seal is a little more. But it kind of authenticates specific things. And so he says that circumcision is is a sign, it's a physical sign of a spiritual reality, but it's also the seal of a specific promise of God that that is authenticated and legitimized, uh, that the the giver or the sender of the sign and the seal is legitimate and you can be trusted. So it was like when a a king would put uh, his kind of signet stamp over the wax seal on an envelope, you could know that it was from the king, right? So this is what he's saying about about circumcision, that it's, uh, so God's specific covenantal promises have always been accompanied by a sign and a seal of these promises. You, you go back and you look at, at, at the story of Noah and the flood that covered the earth when God judged the world. He, he puts this little thing in the sky, a rainbow, right? As a sign and a seal of his promise that he would never destroy the earth through a flood again. Uh, or you think about uh, the Abrahamic covenant, which is accompanied by circumcision, of, of uh, Hebrew boys on their eighth day of life, or Moses and the law that was given to him on Mount Sinai, or even David, the promise that, that, that David's throne would be an everlasting throne, that, that ultimately the king of all the world, who would be the fulfillment of Genesis 3, would ultimately come from David's lineage. And so we read about the fulfillment of that in the genealogy in the New Testament, right? So we see these signs and these seals stitching this covenant of grace together for our hearts. And so so it's on that backdrop that that Paul says this in Romans 4. He says, is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? In other words, was he chasing God down saying like, hey, I really want to follow you, God? Or did it come before he ever thought about following God? He says it was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised. That's a lot of circumcisions. Y'all are thinking the same thing. Um, (laughs) But also who walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Uh, so the point that Paul's making to the Jewish people in Rome at this time is this. Don't look to the fact that your parents had you circumcised when you were a baby as a proof that God owes you salvation. Like, don't come and say, look, hey, I've been following you all my life, God. You owe me salvation. And he says, and likewise, don't look at uncircumcised Gentiles, a second-class citizens who are unworthy of this gift of salvation. You're all in the same boat. And to prove it, just look at our spiritual father, Abraham, is what Paul's saying. He was, he was already righteous before I called him to obey me and be circumcised. Um, and you know, just as a theological aside here, notice how receiving the promise of salvation and then receiving the sign of that promise uh, is, doesn't have to be linked. In Romans 4, it wasn't linked. God redeemed Abraham before he, he was given the sign and the seal of circumcision. You know, our church believes in this, this new administration of the covenant of grace. We, we, we stitch it together through Colossians chapter 2 where you see that Paul talks about that that, that circumcision and baptism are linked. And, and that baptism is what we would say a new administration of that same covenant that we believe is throughout all of the Bible. And that's why we baptize children in this church because we believe that many times in our lives— The timing and receiving of the sign and the seal uh, of the promise are not linked. Sometimes they are. It is repent and be baptized. Like you know exactly when you became a believer. Others of you, maybe you were baptized when you were eight years old. You didn't really know you were a sinner. And so you went to college. You found out real quick you were a sinner and you needed to be rescued, right? And you started following Jesus. And we're not saying, hey, you got to go be rebaptized because you didn't really get it back then. You see, because our awareness of when the sign and the seal, when the reality of the promise in our hearts and the, you know, the sign and the seal of the promise, they, they don't have to be linked. And we're not even often aware of when the things are happening. We know when we respond to faith, but we don't know when God gave us that new heart and raised us from the dead. And it doesn't really matter all that much as long as we believe and we have the sign. And so in our, in our church, it's one of the reasons why we baptize children in this church is because we're following along with the, 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 the same mindset uh, of the Hebrew and Jewish people that, that, that uh, gave their children the sign and seal before they were believers, right? Because of the faith of the parents. But anyway, that's the theological aside. The main point of this passage is that God is the one who comes to us before we follow him. We love because he first loved us, right? Right? As John says, Abraham responded to God's pursuit of him by believing what he'd promised. We are saved by a similar faith when God meets us and our need to be rescued. And we can't look to anything that we've done in obedience as grounds for that rescue is what he's saying here. So let me, let me just land the plane here um, by talking, but kind of closing out the last five verses that I haven't read yet in Romans 4. And I just want you to see that the massive benefits that God has in store for you as we learn to trust in the promise of justification by faith. Let me read these five verses for you real quick. Romans four sixteen. he says, this is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law or the Jewish person, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham as a non-Jewish person who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom we, who he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, No, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Benefits of believing, just three things real quick. Our identity will never change because it rests on grace. Your identity in Jesus rests on grace, not on your own behavior, not on your own record. And because of that, friends, it will never, ever change. Like I said last week, God does not de-justify people, right? So the guarantee of deliverance and rescue from this awful world and our awful hearts that are in this world is resting on grace for us right now and it will for all of eternity. That is to say that the gift is already under the tree, friends. It's not on layaway at the mall. It's not in your Amazon shopping cart. It has been purchased. Your name is on the tag and it is under the tree. It is yours forever, And God has saved us from our sin. He has delivered us from eternal damnation. And he is even now inviting us to live out this life that he's given to us. We're not gonna be able to fully experience this redemption because Jesus, the King, has not returned yet. But we need not to be confused about the legitimacy of whose we are. We are blood-bought saints, safe in the Father's hands, and that will never change. Our record, secondly, has no bearing on our righteousness. Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead when God delivered the world. Think about that. He didn't need their bodies is what we're saying. He didn't need their activity. He didn't need their efforts. He's pleased for us to be a part of his work today in Jesus' name, but he didn't need them. They didn't have a good plan that God endorsed. God brought Isaac, the child of promise, into existence when they were nearly in the grave. And that's a picture of what it's like to think that we can make God love us on our own or give us eternity on our own efforts. We are all, as good or as bad as we think we are, a bag of lifeless bones apart from his spirit bringing us to life and gifting us with faith in the promise. Child of God, because of your faith, in the specific promise that God raised Jesus from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins and so that you could be righteous forever. Because of your faith in that promise, your record does not matter. And that's the best news that I can tell you this morning. Because if you're in here and you think, you know, I'm not that bad, the Lord and his kindness will show you over time that you are that bad, right? And for the rest of you in here that think God could never deliver me because of X, Y, and Z that I did in the past, it doesn't even matter, friends. The record, uh, the, the record, his record is your record. And lastly, we have hope in the midst of hopelessness. That, that phrase, that phrase in Romans 4, in hope he believed against hope. S- such a confounding phrase, right? What are you trying to say, Paul? It doesn't make sense on paper, but man, doesn't it make sense in real time? In hope, It's, it's like this circumstance happened and you think, man, this is hopeless. But somehow you got this little glimmer of hope still, right? In hope, he believed against hope. See, we carry this treasure of hope in these jars of clay, these bodies of ours. And sometimes life dashes us against the rocks through unbearable loss and unbearable disappointment. And other times it seems... That we're so joyous and hopeful that we're already in eternity with our Father in heaven. And this is what it's like to be a part of the kingdom of God this side of Jesus' return. We suffer pain and we suffer loss that should crush us, but somehow it doesn't. And we, we uh, get to experience this beautiful joy and transformation that seems like it's that we're already in eternity, but then we're reminded again of the pain. I'll close with this line from a, a children's storybook Bible that basically is summarizing Roman, or uh, Revelation 21 for us. It's from Sally Lloyd-Jones, uh, the Jesus storybook Bible. And here's what she says. The king says, look, God and his children are together again. That's what your heart's longing for. No more running away, no more hiding, no more crying or being lonely or afraid, no more being sick or dying because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And all of this is ours, friends, through faith. Let's pray together. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.